The following is session two of a teaching series by Reverend Stephen Stacks uh, entitled Christianese, Understanding the Words of Our Faith. This session is on salvation uh, and is from Sunday, November 24th. We'll have two more sessions in this series on December 1st and December 8th, so if you enjoy um, the following session on salvation, I hope you'll join us at 9.30 in the Fellowship Hall at Greenwood Forest Baptist Church for sessions three and four. Okay, good morning, everybody. Welcome, welcome back. Glad to see some of you decided to come back again. <laughs> hey, could have been... Could have been me and God down here, so I appreciate it. Um, so, although the scripture says there have to be two, right? So, it would have just been me. <laughs> two or three. Um, so, I wanted to uh, start off today uh, just with a brief review of what we talked about since it was two weeks ago. Um, I think most, if not all of you, were there, but... Um, I wanted to still kind of, since it bears um, uh, for what we're going to talk about today, it matters. Obviously, sin matters for salvation. Um, so, um, we talked about how people replace the language of sin with other models to explain what's wrong um, with people in the world. Um, I talked about two that Barbara Brown Taylor talks about, which are the medical model and the legal model um, for talking about what is fundamentally wrong with human beings. and. Um, so the medical model being that we're, we're sick and we need treatment, um, and that kind of leads to a, a no-fault theology where everybody gets sick, it's nobody's fault, um, we just need to get better. Um, but it also kind of leads to kind of tossing up your hands, like, well, if, sin is, if you know, what's wrong is all pervasive, then there's nothing we can do about it necessarily, right? Um, and the second model is the legal model, which says that what's wrong with people is... Uh, crime, criminality, that we, we're wrong, we do things that are wrong. Um, this is a full-fault theology where um, everybody's responsible for everything they do and they deserve to be punished um, for the things they do wrong. Um, and uh, by the way, one that I didn't talk about that I think actually progressives uh, also tend towards sometimes is the educational model to explain what's wrong with the world, which is that people are just ignorant. People are just ignorant, and they just need to be taught, and that would fix everything. If everybody was just smarter, taught, I, this, I mean, it's vague, right? But I'm just saying, this is, this is a way that people explain what's wrong with the world, right? That people just need to know more, and then they wouldn't act like they act. Um, okay, in the end, we talked about how none of these are a great replacement for the language we have in our scripture and in Christian theology, sin, um, which many of us have kind of um, lots of negative connotations for. Um, but it is a much more complex concept than we've often given it credit for. Um, it's a, an attempt to describe a reality that I think is universal to, to humanity. Um, this uh, feeling that things are not right, that we are alienated from ourselves and each other and God, the divine, and creation. That's an experience that people, I think all people have uh, at some point in their lives. Um, so sin is language to try to get around that feeling, right, that experience. Um, 
And then kind of pulling together stuff from a lot of different places, we talked about a better working definition of sin, which is living out of the illusion that we are separate from God and each other, living in denial of your own or someone else's identity as a bearer of God's image, alienation from the source of love and goodness for which you were created. Um, so, what is God's answer to the problem of sin? Salvation, hopefully. Right? But what is it? <laughs> uh, before we start, uh, you probably aren't going to be able to see this, but um, I decided, I didn't use a PowerPoint last time, so you didn't get this, but um, I'm going to give you all, probably at the end of the four, like, here's, for further reading, like, a long list of everything. Um, and then maybe, like, the main point of each talk, so that you can have that um, in paper. So I'll give you that at the end, but um, this is most of the stuff that I looked at for today. Um, before we get started, though, since I thought the, sto the story I told um, about the missionary and the Eskimo worked out well to get us into last week's topic, I want to tell you another story to start off today. This is a, this is a personal story, though. This is about my, my uh, grandpa Bill, my dad's dad. Um, he was a funny and eccentric guy. Um, he's the type of person that would tell you the same five stories every time you hung out with him and laugh at him like it was the first time anybody had ever heard the story, that, that kind of person. Um, I don't, my parents used to let him babysit us. I, when I think back on it now, that <laughs> I have kids, I'm like, God, what were they thinking? So, uh, he, one time he came over to our house with a big old cardboard box full of milk, little, those little milk things that um, you don't really see much anymore, but, uh, and we were like, where did you get this? And he's like, oh, it's, it's, it expired, but um, it's from the Wendy's, and they, they were just giving it away, so figured you guys might want it, and I'm like, oh, this is an auspicious start. It comes over with a bunch of expired milk for the kids. Uh, <laughs> Um, but he, one of my favorite stories about him has to do with salvation. Uh, so my dad was a football player and a wrestler in high school. Um, and after he made the team, I, I think this was when he made varsity or something, the coach came over to uh, have dinner with, with his parents, my grandparents. Um, and they, you know, they had small talk and whatnot over the meal. And, and uh, after a while, the coach got serious and said to my grandpa, Bill, uh, Bill, I'd like to make your son a sinner. And Grandpa Bill said, excuse me? <laughs> he said, I'd like to make your son a sinner. And Grandpa Bill said with a little bit of a shocked look on his face, well, uh, Coach, I'm afraid you can't do that. He's, he's already been saved. Sinner. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> Uh, this concept of being saved, of salvation, uh, uh, this, you know, I think a lot of us have grown up with different um, understandings, or maybe we all kind of have a similar um, understanding of what it means to be saved, what salvation means. So I want to do the same thing we started out with last time, which is if you can grab one of those scrap pieces of paper um, and a pen, if you don't have one, towards the middle of your table. And I'd like to just start before we say anything else with you writing down... Um, what you think salvation means. 
Randy and Zemma, why y'all come on the inside here? What you uh, you can do both. Do what you think right now, and then we'll talk about what you raised to think, maybe. Um, but yeah, right right now, if you had to define salvation, write it in one sentence. got one they want to shout out. Fred. or preservation from sin and its consequences, he said. Reconciling with God. Forgiveness of sins. Living in harmony with God's desires, also similar to what um, Fred said. Yeah. Seeking to put God's will above mine. Okay. Seeking to put God's will above mine, she said. I mean, I kind of thought, um, I didn't know how to fully phrase it, but finding freedom from. Yeah. Is that what you were writing down, Zama? All right. <laughs> finding freedom from. What is wrong? Um, by living into the reality of who you are as one created in this. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, all right, take one more minute uh, and talk with the you know four, five, whatever people who are right closest to you um, about your definitions, but also about any stories you have when you think of salvation, or maybe now's the time to talk about how you were maybe how that thinking has evolved, what you used to think salvation means, um, and why you have changed your mind about it. So um, any of those things you can talk about. Your definition that you just wrote down, um, a story you have regarding salvation or being saved, or how you may have evolved in your thinking. So take two minutes and share for a minute. Or any questions you have about salvation. Yeah, <laughs> 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 
Okay, glad to hear you all having a lively discussion, um, which brings me to uh, one caveat I'll just go ahead and say now, which is this is, and I heard some of you kind of talk about this, this topic, this word, this concept is way too big to cover in the next 35 minutes. <laughs> um, it's way too complicated, it's way too much to talk about. Um, we're going to do our best to kind of give us all some things to ponder and think about. and. The, the goal being not just to think about some interesting stuff, but to maybe um, change the way you see scripture next time you read the word or next time you see a scripture that has to do with this, that you, you know, are thinking about that um, more complicated thing than maybe um, what you may have thought about before. Uh, so, um, did anybody, is anything they are burning to share with the group in that little discussion there? We brilliantly all say Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> Mine was, the old adage, once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved, yeah. Good old Calvin. A lot of Baptists don't realize that they're five-point Calvinists. <laughs> I think a lot of Baptists are one-point Calvinists. One, yeah. Which a Calvinist Right. <laughs> it does kind of fall apart. The, they hang together, and once you start to, yeah, we'll, we won't get in the weeds with Calvinism, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so how, I'm going to take a question also, um, but how do we, how do we relate that to, uh, link that to uh, working out our soul salvation mm -hmm. daily yeah. with fear and trembling? 
right? That verse seems to contradict the idea that salvation is a one and done thing, right? Once saved, always saved. If you have to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, how does that jive with once saved, always saved? Right? Or blessed assurance, right? Um, okay. So, yes. Margaret. Salvation is by the grace of God. Yes. <laughs> yes. So um, we'll probably get to that in a minute. And next week's session is on faith. So we will continue because as good Protestants, we've all um, locked on to uh, salvation by faith. Um, so we'll talk about what that means next week as well. Um, so we'll continue some of the stuff we start today. But it raises a lot of questions talking about this, right? What is salvation? How does one obtain salvation? Is it a one-time thing? Is it a continuous thing? Is it a future thing? Who is saved? Who will be saved? Um, there aren't, unfortunately, clear answers for all those questions um, in Scripture. But there are, I think, you know... Um, there are answers. They just sometimes don't agree with one another. Um, and we get to talk about what that means for us in our lives. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about, and it seems that most of you are already here, which I am happy about, but um, if you here, as in past this idea, but um, if you aren't, and that's okay, because this is how what I was raised, this is the emphasis that was put um, on salvation for me, which is that salvation um, is about the afterlife, right? Salvation is about your eternal destination. Um, it's about going to heaven. Um, and what I want to say, first of all, is that salvation is more than going to heaven when you die. Um, and the Bible is very clear about that. Um, the first part of that is that salvation is about this life, not just the afterlife. Um, the Bible uses, I heard somebody mentioning this too, but the Bible uses past tense, present tense, and future tense, I think it was Lydia maybe, um, when it talks about salvation. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. All of those are expressed in scripture, um, which immediately kind of puts the question mark up about whether salvation is just about eternal destination, right? Um, I would even say, agreeing with Marcus Borg, for those of you who have read some of his stuff, that it's primarily about this life, salvation, that in Scripture, that Scripture is not that concerned, <laughs> frankly, with what happens after we die. It's much more concerned with now, um, which I know is, seems wrong, probably, based on the emphasis that American Christianity has put on the afterlife. But if you go back and look, the preponderance of scripture um, with regard to salvation and everything else is about transforming our lives individually and communally now. Um, the, the quote from Borg, the, the relevant quote is, the Bible is not about the saving of individuals for heaven, but about a new social and personal reality in the midst of this life. Um, the problem with focusing solely on the afterlife is that it neglects, it causes us to neglect the world that God loves. 
and miss, I think, the entire point of our calling as Christians in the church. Our calling is not to bide our time until we fly away. Right? Our calling is to be salt and light, to transform, to participate in God's transformation, God's reign in the world now. Um, you can see this kind of idea that salvation is about this life, not just the afterlife expressed all over scripture, but um, I've written down a few passages which are um, Exodus 14, 13, which is when Moses says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And that is about, obviously, that moment, right? <laughs> it's about not being killed by the Egyptians right then. Um, psalm 69, which is uh, a psalm of pleading with God to save, save me from my enemies. Um, and then several things from uh, the New Testament, some stuff from Corinthians, uh, which we'll get to in a little bit again. And Luke 19, which we talked about in worship uh, two weeks ago, um, Zacchaeus. Um, so when Jesus says, after Zacchaeus promises to um, give back four times what he has uh, plundered from people, and to give half of his possessions away to the poor, Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house. The second thing I would say is that salvation is bodily, not just spiritual. We often think of salvation as, we think as, as dualists, right? That the body and the spirit are separate. And this is a kind of a major hallmark of Western thought for the last 500 years, so it's not your fault. <laughs> but, but the Bible doesn't view things that way. Um, the body and the soul, the body and the mind, the body and the spirit, these are all connected and you can't be separated. Um, even when the Bible's talking about spirit and soul, it is not thinking of those things in isolation from the body. And you can tell this because every time the Bible talks about resurrection um, or life in the age to come, it's, it's talking about bodies. Right? That's why we talk about the resurrection of the body. Um, a couple of passages that I think that we read at funerals, I think, kind of obscure this a little bit because they um, in, they kind of emphasize the idea that the body is wasting away, that the body is suffering, and that we're waiting for our eternal weight of glory, as um, Paul put it. But um, I think that's more just about suffering in this life than it is about like a denigration of the body. Um, God is concerned about our bodies because when God made our bodies, God said, they're good, right? Um, so again, we can look at the Exodus story as about God is concerned that the people are, that the people's bodies are enslaved, not just to kind of rescue them in the afterlife, not just to transform their inner life, but God is concerned with saving their whole person. Um, you can see this in this kind of mysterious verse in Job where, uh, you know, even that early we see the writer starting to talk about resurrection and saying, I know my Redeemer lives and I shall stand with him at the last and I shall all, and in my flesh, he says, in my flesh I shall see God. Um, and then Luke 3, 5 to 6. Can somebody have a Bible? They can look that up real quick. 
That's a good Adventy verse. Does anybody have it? Luke 3, 5, and 6. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Right. Right. It is, yes. John the Baptist quoting Isaiah. Luke quoting John the Baptist quoting Isaiah. Um, but Isaiah expressing that in the end, when things are made right, when the crooked is straight, when, the, when everything is level and equal, when God's way is plain, all flesh shall see. Not all souls. Mm-hmm. My burning question would be, okay, salvation, but salvation from what? Yeah, yeah. In modern terms, when, when the word saved, it's saved from something, you know. Right. And heathen might get philosophical and talk about saved to, but saved from. Now, in the Old Testament, we got pretty specific about saved from. It was the enemy, the Egyptian, mm-hmm. you know. Much more material things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, and then my interpretation of Zacchaeus is something about his salvation had to do with attitude and viewpoint mm-hmm. toward life and other human beings that there seemed to be that implication there, but it still doesn't say, say from what. Right, and I would argue that when we leave people asking that question, it's probably because we haven't talked about sin well enough. We haven't talked about what is wrong with people in a way that connects to their experience, right? We may have talked about like, well, all have sinned in the sense that all have done, you know, disobeyed a law of God, and that leads to some like kind of intellectual maxim that we're all condemned. That's kind of confusing though because I don't know any perfect Right, right, right. But what I'm saying is I think people do have an experience that there's something broken. Right. There's something about our life experience that needs saving. I mean, if you just look around at what's, what happens in the world, even if, if you're not just relying on your individual experience, but look around at how messed up the world is, then I think there is a desire for salvation which we'll talk about in a minute. What you know? Again, we're we're getting there, but yeah, I agree with you that when it's when it's shallow, you know, it's like that algebra formula that I get. It, it's not very compelling, right? To just say, if you disobey God, you deserve to go to hell forever. But Jesus, but if you say and if you think in your brain, Jesus, come into my heart, which is what we think of prayer as, right? Just, think this thought in your brain, then you'll go to heaven. I mean, that is not a very compelling, in my opinion, not a very compelling argument for people who are not you know, raised in that kind of intellectual climate. Because um, it doesn't explain any of their life experience. It doesn't speak to the deep pain and trauma that people experience in the world um, with, to just say that, you know, if you say this prayer, then you'll go to heaven when you die. And what about now? I have a 
right, right. This isn't a talisman. Right. It's not. It's not. But what would it mean for, well, you're getting ahead of me, so wait a minute. All right. <laughs> third, third thing is that um, salvation is political and communal, and I tie those words together, not just individual. So we typically think of your, your personal salvation as the most important thing. Um, but that's not really borne out by Scripture's understanding of salvation either. Um, first of all, the language of Savior, salvation, um, is political language. The, those, these words were used to describe emperors and kings, Savior. Caesar was our, is our Savior. He's brought peace to us. This, this, there are Roman imperial proclamations that say this exact thing. And the gospel writers are riffing off of those and saying, it's not Caesar who is savior and who saves. It's Jesus, our king, our president, our emperor. Right? Um, and again, as Randy was talking about earlier, this, pat, this kind of idea of working out our salvation cannot be done in isolation. I mean, the, the, um, the implication of that passage, you all work out your salvation in fear and trembling, and the you there is plural, y'all work it. The Bible would benefit from using the word y'all. Uh, because at pretty much every epistle, when it says you, it's y'all. It's, it's never you as an individual. It's y'all. So you should just sub in the word y'all for you pretty much every time in scripture, and that'll help you. Y'all work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Um, the sense is that we have to be with each other to do that, and that our, my salvation is bound up with yours, that we have to work it out together. Um, again, Zacchaeus is a great example of this. Like, today salvation has come to this house, and I would extend that beyond Zacchaeus's household, but also, what does that mean that Zacchaeus is gonna give up half of his possessions and pay back four times to the poor what he's stolen for that entire city? You know, salvation and, sal and Zacchaeus's personal salvation is bound up with everybody else. Um, and lastly, salvation is cosmic, universal in the sense of the universe, not just about humans. Um, I don't know if this is news to you, but God doesn't just care about human beings, God loves human beings. <laughs> But God cares about all of creation. And when the Bible talks about salvation, it is often extended far beyond human beings and our bodies and souls and our eternal destination. It's often talking about the making of, making all of creation right, making all that is wrong right. The concept of shalom in the Hebrew Bible and Hebrew language is about wholeness um, of everything, not just you. Um, Richard Rohr has a thing that he likes to talk about where he says, Christ is not Jesus' last name. He says that a lot because it takes a while for people to absorb that. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus is the Christ, but the Christ mystery is something that goes far beyond Jesus, the human who lived in first century Palestine. This is what John is talking about in the first chapter where he says, in the beginning was the Logos, the Christ mystery, 
through, through whom all things came into being. Obviously, Jesus did not exist. Jesus, the human, did not exist, but the Christ did. You are the Christ. Right, right. Um, and the epistles talk about this a lot, especially, but um, that all things will be reconciled, are reconciled, and will be reconciled through the work of Jesus. And so we see things like, um, somebody look up Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Felice, who else has a Bible over here? Gail, can you look up Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20? And then Lorraine, can you look up um, Romans chapter 8? Verses 19 to 24. Page 19, and 19 to 24. 24 yeah. yeah, whoever has it first, go for it. Is this Ephesians? And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fullness, their fulfillment, bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one all things in heaven and on earth together. Uh, who had uh, Colossians 1? Gail? 15 through 20. So what I find so amazing about this is that when you move beyond salvation as about you um, and where you go when you die, that it is about this life 
It is bodily, not just and spiritual. It's both, right? It is political, communal, and individual. It is cosmic, and about human beings. Um, it makes following God, in my opinion, a much more exciting proposition that we are participating in the expanding reign of God now, which is a much more, it's a much bigger calling than um, let me try to live a pious life until I die and I'm already sure that I'm going to heaven because I prayed the prayer, um, which is it's boring, right? What does that mean? Yeah, I have a question. We're talking about actions and Christianity about an atheist who does more than most Christians do? What salvation is there for them? Do they have it? All right, now. <laughs> Let's keep going. Yeah. I'm going to get there. That's a good question. That's an excellent question. All right. Um, so the next thing I want to emphasize with you is that different biblical writers emphasize different things about salvation and different paths to it. If you start to look for this, you will see that, for instance, the Gospels have very different ideas about how one achieves salvation. We have been taught, most of us, uh, I, well, let me not say we, I was taught um, by kind of cherry-picking a verse at a time that um, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth, you shall be saved. Um, which is one verse about that. But there's a lot of other ones that say something different. Um, who of you were here for Tim Moore's discipleship retreat last year when he talked about his book, Practicing Midrash? And, and then in the Sunday morning session, he talked about the chapter that's about following Jesus and how um, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have very different ideas about what it means and you know, what's important uh, when following Jesus. I would turn the following Jesus phrase around to be to say that the Gospels have different ideas about what it means to be saved and how. Um, so, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, salvation is about action. And this flies in the face of the kind of Protestant idea that salvation is by grace alone, not by works, and we kind of over overemphasize as a reaction to um, what we call works righteousness the idea that we don't have to do anything we can't do anything so we shouldn't um, which is not biblical uh, but in the gospels I mean think about the rich young ruler for instance he comes to Jesus and says what must I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus says what does the law say he says this stuff, and he said, good, do that. <laughs> you know? And then he says, but you, he looked at him, and he loved him. That, that's not in a, I don't think that's in all three accounts, but, um, and said, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give the money to the poor, and then come and follow me. So it seems that Jesus is suggesting one must do something to be saved, to inherit eternal life in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, in John, it's much more about belief and knowing God. John is very uh, intent that we should believe in the name of Jesus, that we need to know God, and that's how we inherit eternal life. 
even the phrase eternal life, we, when do you think that happens? Most of the time we, we think eternal life is later. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, when you start to think about the facts, so there's, a, there's one verse in John that gets at this, uh, and I don't know if I wrote it down, but Jesus is praying, and he says, basically, um, he's praying that they, that his disciples should um, inherit eternal life, and to do so, you know, he says, knowing God is eternal life, basically. which suggests that that can happen now, right? Um, but my point in this, so, you know, salvation is a broad concept. So Barbara Brown Taylor says, Jesus might define salvation as recovery from illness or addiction, forgiveness of debt, peace between enemies, shared food in time of famine, justice for the poor. All these things Jesus says are salvation at different points in his ministry. Um, there's all kinds of images in scripture. Um, Marcus Borg lists these. Light and darkness, sight to the blind, enlightenment, liberation for captives, return from exile, healing of our infirmities, food and drink. Just food and drink together. Sometimes talks about as salvation. Um, resurrection from the land of the dead, being born again, knowing God, being in Christ, being made right with God. All these things are ways of talking about images for what salvation is and can be. Um, and so um, we'll talk more next week when we talk about faith about what salvation by faith actually means but um, for now I want to just say that the witness of scripture is that God saves of God's own volition while we were yet sinners God right but we also must respond and participate to experience God's salvation so there's a tension there Right? God takes action ahead of us, outside of us, and our freedom. Right? But also, there's something that we must do. That is the witness of Scripture. Um, so we'll talk more about that next week. Um, St. Augustine has a famous quote that's attributed to him. Who knows if he actually said it? Um, which is the way that most of these quotes go. Um, unless you can find it in um, one of his books. But... It's without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. Yes. She said, how do you explain when someone is sick and is not healed and dies, I assume you mean, um, are they not saved? I would say no. Uh, no as in uh, they, that does not mean they are not saved. Uh, this is what I mean by salvation in different contexts. Like uh, experiencing healing can be described as salvation and is in scripture. When Jesus heals people, um, the word the literal word is often the word that's also translated as salvation sometimes. Um, but that's why we say in the prayers of the people every week, we acknowledge that you have the power to heal in this life and the next. Um, 
Yes. The word healing has more to it than cure. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, which is why we talk about wholeness. Salvation is, you know, there's something about being made whole that goes beyond um, whatever physical thing is happening in our lives. Um, but yeah, to, the short answer is no, I would not say that they aren't saved because saved is bigger than that. It, you know, it can be that, but it's also much, much broader than just physical healing um, from, from an illness. But I would also assert that that person is and will be healed physically. Just not now. Does that make sense? Uh, that's obviously, that's like a huge question. That... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's also bound up with prosperity gospel stuff that, you know, you didn't pray hard enough kind of nonsense. Um, but it is nonsense. That's right. But some deaths are traumatic, and the, the response to that is that already but not yet. This is the tension in Scripture that the age to come where mourning and crying and pain will be no more is not here yet. But it, that's the hope, right? And we see what I think when we're talking about salvation here and now, what I think that is attempt to describe is when we see outbreaks of God's reign and wholeness. And we see a glimpse of it, and it's, we know it's not in, it's not complete, but we say that that's it, right? That's what the hope is. And so that when someone is miraculously healed, we say yes, that's what God's going to do for everybody. But it's not not finished yet. Um, all right, so a bigger definition of salvation for us would be experiencing the wholeness that God intends for us in all of creation which again that can be now or later Experience, that's, that's open enough to be you can start experiencing that now um, wrong being made right the reversal of the alienation we feel from God ourselves and each other so the reversal of the definition of sin we had last time um <clears throat> And again, we may not experience this completely until the next life, but God's goal is to save the world, not to take us away from it to a better place. If you look at the pictures of the new Jerusalem and whatnot in Scripture, God's coming here to make things right here in the age to come. That's what Scripture says. Um, all right, and in the three minutes that I have left... 
I want to make you all into universalists. <laughs> um, and talk about this. Uh, this Does God get what God wants is a phrase from Rob Bell, um, which I think is a provocative phrase, right? Does God get what God wants? And what that phrase is referring to is that there are several scriptures that talk about how God intends to save everyone. And so if God intends, if it's God's will that all shall be saved, then what does that mean for our picture of an eternal hell of torture for some people? Does that mean that God doesn't get what God wants in the end? Um, the Western Christian concepts of heaven and hell are way after scripture. They come into being. Um, what we think of as hell comes from Dante, not from the Bible. Um, there is no single word or concept for a place of eternal torment in scripture. We, we have translated several words to be hell, but those are all different words, and none of them mean what we think hell means. Um, Jesus does speak, does speak. Uh, so the closest the New Testament comes is in Matthew 25, at the end of Matthew 25, after Jesus says, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. Um, so again, something you have to do there, right? <laughs> I was sick and you, you know, I was in prison, you didn't visit me, etc. Then Jesus says something about the goats will be sent. Okay. Um, so that's like the clearest picture that we have of, a, of a, what we would call hell. And then in Revelation, there's a couple of vague things about it. Other than that, there's no clear concept in the Bible of hell the way we think of it. Um, and of course, Matthew 25 is a parable. It, I mean, Jesus told stories and parables, um, and Revelation is obviously uh, metaphorical. Um, it's, it's using fantastic language the whole time. So those are not very good sources, I think, to establish an entire doctrine about where most of the people throughout human history are going to go and be tortured forever. Those three verses. Um, now, the Bible does, however, have a lot of passages that seem to suggest that there is a final salvation for all people and all things. We've already read a couple of them. Think back to some of those passages about all things and all people and all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. And Christ is going to, there's an amazing verse in John that says, um, Jesus is on the cross dragging all people to himself. Which seems to go against our idea that we can resist, right? <laughs> dragging all people to himself. Um, all right, let's read like two of these, but I'm going to, uh, the full list is Romans 5, 18 to 19, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, Romans 11, 32, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, Titus 2, 11, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. Okay, that's, that's only half of them, but let's look at 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6. Can somebody look that up? Um, somebody over here, Beth, can you look up 2 Peter 3, 9? Lee, can you look up uh, 1 Timothy 4.10? Yeah. 
Counseling, what, what comes right after John 3.16? Does anybody know that? What does John 3.17 say? Right. For God so loved the world that he was only son of eternal life. And then it says, For God came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the whole world might be saved. All right, who's got something? You I don't know. I got First Timothy two. No, no, First Timothy, two, yeah, two, three through six. Okay, I got that. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus Himself, human, who gave Himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. God intends that all. Oh. All right, who else has something? Second Peter three verse nine. The Lord is not the Lord is not slow to do what he has promised, as some think. Instead, he is patient with you because he does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants all to turn away from their wickedness. Wow. Do you have? Which one do you have? Okay. Philippians? Uh, 1 Timothy 4.10. Oh, 4, yeah. For to this end we call and struggle because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Ah, that's weird, isn't it? The Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Hmm. Wonder what that could mean. That is a that is yeah that's a potential interpretation of that right. Um, God, we have experienced God as Savior. Now we those of us who believe and who follow in the way, but God is the Savior also of all people who have not experienced that. Um, right. Yes, and what I would contend is that that choice doesn't stop necessarily. Yes. So we have, we have, um, and here's a, here's a verse to, um, to back that up. So in, in the picture of the city of God that comes down from heaven to be on earth in, in Revelation, um, there's this fascinating part where it says, and the gates of the city will never be closed. Which is a weird thing to say if all the people who accepted Jesus while they were alive are going to be in there and everybody else is in hell. Why would the gate, gates are for keeping people out, right? They keep people in. So if the gates are always open and will never be closed, that indicates to me that there is potential there. There is an openness from God that even after death people, and if you want a kind of allegorical picture of this, C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, is a good thing to read. Um, in which he kind of describes his vision of hell, which is this gray metropolis that a row of houses gets built every time a certain number of people die, and the people who, but it's as you, the longer you spend there, the further away you get from the city at the top of the hill, right? So you, you know, if you decide not to take the trolley up to the, to God's city, you, you know, when somebody else dies, you move one, you get further away from it. Right, 
Um, but it's not a place of eternal torment, it's a place of alienation. Purgatory is a, is a theological concept that arises from the idea that God is just and somehow, <laughs> if God's going to save these horrible people, like, our bad deeds must be burned away. And actually, that's from Paul. Yeah. All right. We can keep talking about this forever. We will keep talking about it next week when we talk about faith. Um, but uh, that... That list of scriptures, and there's actually more, comes from this new David Bentley Hart book, which is a little hard to read because he's uh, he's a academic and is like uses fancy language. But um, the idea of this book, that all shall be saved, is that you know since about 400 uh, A.D., the church has developed a kind of theology about hell that is in contradiction to scripture and what the first three centuries of the church believed about this. Um, so it's a good book if you can wade through it. He also has an article on Christian Century that like summarizes it. Um, so, all right. Thank you all. I got to run. Thank you. Thank you.